Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today I'm joined by Chai-Ching Huang, who's the executive director of the Tax Law Center at NYU Law. Uh, Chai-Ching knows more about tax policy than just about anybody in the world, uh, certainly among people I know. And she's going to walk you and me through some of the major changes to the tax code that are being proposed as part of the latest version of the Build Back Better bill being negotiated by Congress. So that package is, of course, still in a lot of flux, but as of this recording, it totals roughly $2 trillion in spending and roughly $2 trillion in new tax revenue over a decade, give or take a few hundred billion on either side of that. And each side features some important changes to the tax code, as some of the biggest new spending programs are being implemented as tax credits. Most of the climate spending in the package, just to give one example, is, is structured as tax credits, either for individuals or for corporations. Meanwhile, the package includes some significant tax hikes for both wealthy individuals and for businesses, including some important changes to international taxation that are a part of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's negotiations with other countries trying to set a common framework for taxing companies. We've talked a lot about Build Back Better here on The Weeds, but we haven't really talked about it as tax legislation. So I wanted to walk through the bill with Chai Ching and think about how different the tax code could look after this passes. So thanks so much for being here, Chai Ching. Awesome to be here, Dylan. So let's start with the spending side. Uh, In particular, let's start with a provision that I know we both care about a lot, uh, which is the expanded child tax credit. Tell us a bit about what that credit looked like before this year, how it changed under the Biden stimulus earlier this year, and how it would change if if Build Back Better passes. So before the Biden stimulus, the child tax credit was really lopsided. A couple making $400,000 a year with a toddler would get $2,000 child tax credit, the maximum per child. On the other hand, some 27 million children in low-income families would get less than a $2,000 per child credit or zero. So if you had a single mother with a toddler earning $10,000 a year, maybe she's working minimum wage, unpredictable hours as a home health aide or a cashier, she'd only get about $1,100 in child tax credit, so about half the amount going to the high-income couple. 
And if she or her kid got sick and she couldn't work for a year, she would get absolutely nothing. So the families most struggling to make ends meet were locked out of the full credit because their incomes were too low under that design. That disproportionately left behind families already facing barriers in the labour market, including Black, Latino and rural children. Um, You you asked about how the, the stimulus plan changed that, and it really rebalanced that picture. It made 27 million kids in the lowest income families eligible for the full credit. And it also increased the maximum credit to $3,600 for kids under six and to $3,000 for older kids, including making 17-year-olds newly eligible. And that increase was targeted towards those making below $150,000 a year for a married couple. It also included the U.S. territories in the expansion and included some of the kids that the 2017 tax law stripped of the credit because they aren't eligible for a social security number. Finally, it sets up a really exciting monthly distribution mechanism. So this was this is part of the stimulus. It expires at the end of this year. What does Biden want to do in Build Back Better? What does he want to extend for how long? Sort of what, what's the future of the credit if Build Back Better passes? Basically, all of those changes that we talked about would continue for one more year. The thing that's really exciting, I think, to, to me and probably to you because you've been covering this for so long, is that it makes the provision that ensured that low-income families get the maximum credit, that is made permanent. And that's a really huge deal. So just to to get a little bit into the weeds here, um, the full refundability is the technical term for the provision that allows the mother making $10,000 a year to to get the full credit, same as a a mother making $150,000 a year at the top end of, of the expanded credit. And I sometimes had difficulty communicating this to people because the the way that the child tax credit was stated to work was as you can get some credit if you make at least $2,500 a year. And I think to especially to sort of middle class, uh, upper middle class readers, that doesn't sound like a lot of money. But something like a third of children didn't get a, a full credit under the old system. Why did it leave so many people out? What's the population that was was getting left out or getting a smaller credit the way the credit used to be designed uh, who are now being included under the new Biden era rules for it? The, the thing is that under the old credit structure, you have to make at least $2,500 a year to get even a single dollar of the credit. And as you were saying, you have to make a lot more to get the maximum credit. So when you introduce this provision known as full refundability that makes people even with no earnings eligible for the credit. It doesn't just make that relatively small number of people with no earnings eligible. It also ensures that low-income working people can get that full amount. And I think um, that really basic fact of just how many people are working, you know, sometimes long hours, making really little money can get missed in this debate. You know, that that $10,000 a year mother, when you think about the fact that someone working full-time at federal minimum wage is earning just $14,500 a year, that's not an unusual example. I wanted to ask you about the main counter-argument that we've heard against the credit since it's been introduced, and this is something you you hear from economists. Uh, Sometimes people like Marco Rubio and sometimes Joe Manchin have, have made this argument in the Senate. But the critique is that the old system, which excluded all, all these people who were earning sort of minimum wage, very low wages, that 
it was an incentive for people to work more that that because you couldn't get the credit if you didn't hold a job it was a way to to encourage people to work and i think the the way that this critique takes shape now is is people claiming that this is slowing down the recovery that the people are are avoiding joining the workforce because they're getting these checks from the government you've studied this issue a lot there's a lot of research on this is that a serious concern? Is 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 it significant? How how do we use to weigh concerns about that against like the humanitarian concern of if someone has no income, you you are worried, especially for how well their kids are doing? Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I think you just don't see the research supporting the idea that this would affect work to a substantial degree. Even before the pandemic, um, one of those sort of blue ribbon uh, panels that I know you're a fan of, <laughs> uh, the National Academy of Sciences expert panel on child poverty, they looked at the research and concluded that there would be a very small impact on work hours and employment from moving to a, a child allowance of the sort that we're um, looking at at the moment. And we also haven't really seen it in the initial data following the implementation of the monthly child tax credit payments. Um, Columbia look, universities had a look at those. The other place we don't see it is in other rich countries. These countries generally do a lot more than the US to reduce child poverty with direct cash transfers to families. And we've seen studies of Canada's implementation of its child benefits, finding little or no employment effect. And in fact, even finding that some families may have worked more, um, perhaps because it is actually costly to work. You have to be able to afford transportation and childcare and all of the things that are associated with actually getting to work. One piece of context that's important to remember here is that the child credit isn't the only part of, of Biden's proposal and that some other parts of the proposal might increase incentives to work. Um, so I wanted to ask about one one of those in particular, which is the earned income tax credit. This is a, a credit that's existed for many years that worked a little like how the CTC, the child tax credit worked before this year with a with a phase in. And Biden wants to expand it. Uh, walk me through his proposal there, how it would change it and, and sort of what we might expect to happen to both poverty and, and work uh, if those changes happen. Generally, the tax code federally reflects the view that you don't want to have people with incomes that are above the poverty line and then they go and file for federal taxes and pay their income and payroll taxes and those taxes push them below the poverty line or even make families with incomes already below the poverty line even more poor. Um, and a big way the tax code achieves avoiding taxing people into poverty is with the earned income tax credit. It's a tax credit for families with low and moderate income earnings, and it offsets their federal income and payroll taxes. It's a pretty remarkable policy success story that I know you've covered. There's a large and robust body of research on how it delivers better outcomes for families, and it's enjoyed bipartisan support. But a big problem is, as you pointed to, is that it largely excludes adults who aren't raising children in their homes and completely excludes young workers without children who are just starting off in the workforce. That zero or low EITC for those workers means that there are about six million of them that the federal tax code actually does tax into or deeper into poverty. So the, the, the current proposal would continue for another year, the rescue plan provision that raised the maximum credit for those workers from about $500 to about $1,500. And it would also importantly make 19 to 24 year olds newly eligible as well as workers 65 and over. Even with those improvements, a pretty modest credit and it phases out at pretty low earnings 
fully phased out between sort of sixteen and twenty thousand dollars of earnings a year. But I think there's some real potential there, particularly in terms of of helping out those workers that are you know trying to get uh, into the labor force in the first place. And, and one thing I just want to underline here is we sometimes refer to this as a childless EITC provision, and it's true that that, that people who without children can can claim it are probably the bulk of people claiming it. But there's also a, a problem with what are called non-custodial parents. Um, so parents in, in divorced couples or, or couples who have split or where one parent doesn't have full custody or, or has sort of minor visitation aren't eligible for things like the child tax credit. And my understanding is that the quote unquote childless EITC provision would help them as well. Is that right? Yes, you would include sort of uh, non-custodial parents. There would also be people who are living in families with children in the household, so maybe their younger siblings or a niece or a nephew that might be involved in that kid's life. And some of the older workers also have grown children that aren't in the home. So, you know, workers, including these so-called childless ones, are parts of families and communities, and we, we should recognise that. And there's also sort of value, independent of whether or not there are children involved, of helping um, alleviate hardship and also help their job market prospects. We've been mostly talking about these two credits, the, the child tax credit and the, the earned income tax credit that serve a number of purposes, but, but are, are primarily anti-poverty measures. And, and another segment of the tax code that Biden wants to change is the Affordable Care Act. Uh, if you've ever bought health care on the exchanges, you've, you might have seen the premium tax credits referred to. But people without as much familiarity might not know that, that the way Obamacare largely works is, is through tax credits to help you pay for exchange health insurance. And Biden wants to expand some of those credits. Uh, walk me through what he wants to do there and, and sort of how significant a change that would be to, to the healthcare system. So the, the proposal strengthens those premium tax credits in two big ways to try to get millions more people health insurance. The first way is that they would be used to get health coverage to those people who are living in states that refuse to take up the Medicaid expansion. So remember, the main way that the Affordable Care Act tried to get health coverage and care to people with incomes below or near the poverty line was by trying to include them in the Medicaid program. In 2012, though, the Supreme Court said that states could get to choose whether or not their low-income residents would get that coverage through Medicaid. 39 states expanded, but 12 didn't, and that leaves more than 2 million people with incomes below the poverty line who can't get covered by Medicaid because their states refuse to expand, and they're not eligible for premium tax credits to purchase health insurance on those marketplace exchanges because the original health law intended for them to be covered by Medicaid. So they fall in this coverage gap. And look, many of the states that refuse to take up the expansion, they're southern states with above average shares of black residents. Some 60% of people in the coverage gap are people of colour. So what this proposal would do is to allow people who are living in states who are in that coverage gap to get health insurance plans on the marketplace, but at zero premium cost. And the way that it achieves that is to, to use the premium tax credits to cover the full cost of those people purchasing health insurance. The second thing that the plan does in this area is to continue some of the stimulus improvements to premium tax credits. Those changes increase the credits so that they cover more of the cost of care. 
They also protected people from having to pay back large amounts of their credits uh, when they filed for their taxes if their incomes changed unexpectedly during the year. And that was something that particularly older people um, might have had to, to face if they sort of got up to a cliff of, of income around 400% of, of the federal poverty line. I did want to touch briefly on uh, some of the climate provisions because those are also largely structured as tax credits. Mm -hmm. Can you give sort of a broad sense of how that works and what that would mean for for both like individual taxpayers listening and and how it would change kind of the corporate code as well? I don't think it's broadly understood and, and I don't think I quite understood until I dug into this quite how much these tax subsidies could move the needle in reducing emissions. There's some independent analysis by the Rhodium Group that finds that if Congress enacts a package like the one that is in the House at the moment and the administration takes regulatory action using the Clean Air Act, the US can actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions by about 40 to 50 percent below 2005 levels by the end of the decade. And that's in range with the administration's targets for contributing to the Paris Agreement goal of holding global warming to about 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So that's quite substantial. And the biggest part of the current packages for emissions reductions would come from the about $140 billion in business side tax credits for green energy production. Um, the analysis estimates that that would substantially accelerate deployment of wind, solar, and other renewables. The package, as you said, also has additional credits to improve energy efficiency and some sector-specific efforts to curb greenhouse gas emissions in sectors ranging from transportation to industrial production. And that's where some of the things like the individual credits for purchasing electric vehicles comes in. So when I sort of first looked at this, Coming at it with it as a as a sort of a tax person, I think sometimes we're drawn to the one big elegant solution of something like a single economy wide price, and and we could sort of talk about potential next steps on that as well. But I think the big takeaway here is that you can actually get a pretty hefty reduction in emissions from going sector by sector, going through a range of things, and that kind of reflects the fact that. This problem is everywhere in the economy and you can you can sort of choose to do it in a targeted way, piece by piece, or that kind of bigger across the board approach. It's sort of surprising across across the board how much you can get done with the tax code. If you're just running through the provisions we just ran through, we're talking about provisions that could reduce emissions by, by 40 to 50 percent in conjunction with the EPA that could slash child poverty by 40 percent that could reduce poverty among, among people working minimum wage or near minimum wage jobs, that could close the Medicaid coverage gap. These are like really, really big social policy changes. And one question I wanted to ask you is to sort of walk through the pluses and minuses of doing this kind of thing through the tax code. I think a lot of the business uh, infrastructure can handle a lot more in terms of mixtures of different provisions. On the individual side, I think the thing that, that is easiest for the tax system to do is to deliver cash that is not tied to specific expenses. So things like the ITC and the child tax credit, which you know can be used for any of the expenses associated with working, childcare and, and making ends meet. It does get trickier when you're trying to tie to a specific 
expense like childcare or health insurance, for example. And that's because when you are trying to, to sort of craft those policies, quite often the people that you want to help most uh, afford those expenses are the ones that are most cash-strapped. So it doesn't work for a lot of those people to say, you have to pay for the expense during the year, which is, you know, you need to have cash on hand to do that and then come back later in the year and claim a subsidy on your tax return, effectively. That sort of cash gap is a real big problem for, for a lot of people. Now, that's not to say that you can't address that. I mean, the premium tax credits is an example. Uh, you know, you don't really see that happening when you purchase on the exchanges in a sort of a really tangible way. It doesn't show up directly in your bank account. It's sort of happening on the back end. But there is a lot of infrastructure that went into making that work. And to me, that just sort of means that we should be cautious about how many of these types of programs that are tied to specific expenses we stand up at any one time in, in the tax administration. You might still choose to do it. You might decide that a spending program is more efficient. You might decide that actually what you want to do is just sort of uh, increase cash that's not tied to a particular issue. But you do have to, I think, be careful about taking up too many of these big administrative problems at any one time. We're going to take a break, but then Chai Ching Huang and I are going to talk about whose taxes are going up in the bill and how we're paying for all of it. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Welcome back to The Weeds. Once again, I'm here with Chai Ching Huang, who is executive director of the Tax Law Center at NYU Law. And we're talking about the Democrats' Build Back Better bill. And I wanted to dive into the tax increases that are included in the package used to pay for all the, the spending and tax cuts that we talked about in the last segment. So first, let's start with individuals and, and high-income individuals in particular. How would this bill sort of in its latest iteration change taxes for, for high-income people? For the really big picture, for the years in effect, taxes would go down for every income group except those at the very top. 
the tax policy and estimates that the top 1% would pay about $54,000 more in 2023. And that's a pretty big dollar number until you remember that those households are making about $3 million a year on average. So in percentage terms, their after-tax incomes would go down by only about 2.75%. For the top 0.1%, they'd be paying about $585,000 more on average. Their incomes average about $14 million a year. And on percentage terms, their after-tax income goes down by about 5.9%. And there's a, there's a mix of provisions uh, that are combining to have this overall effect. What I could start with is a bit of a Swiss Army knife of a provision that does a <laughs> few different useful things at once. It's a 5% surcharge on incomes above $10 million, and then another 3% on incomes above $25 million. And this thing is referred to as an AGI surcharge, and... The reason it's called that rather than just a tax rate increase is that it applies to capital gains and dividends also. So that would mean that the very top rate on salaries above $25 million would go from 37 to 45%, and the top rate on capital gains and dividends above those levels would go from 23.8% to 31.8%. So Altogether, that raises about $200 billion over 10 years from the highest income, like two out of every 1,000 Americans. And there's there's another provision in there that, that raises, I think by some estimates, as much or more, which is a change to something called the net investment income tax. So NIIT is known well among tax wonks, and I've, I've never met someone outside <laughs> our, our little circle who knows what it is. Um, so, so walk me through what that tax is now and, and sort of how this bill would change it and, and why that raises so much money. Yeah, so it's about $250 billion over 10 years. So as you say, it's, a, it's pretty big money. And this is really a loophole closer. So high-income people, they, they pay a 3.8% Medicare tax on their wages and self-employment income. And the Affordable Air Care Act enacted a parallel 3.8% tax on their income from investments. So it sort of did a little bit to rebalance that gap between uh, earnings and investments with respect to the Medicare tax. But the problem is that it had a really big loophole. Some high-income people can get their income through owning partnerships and S-corporations. These are types of businesses that don't face the corporate rate. Instead, the income shows up on individual tax returns. And the problem is that some big categories of this income that owners get from these businesses don't face the Medicare tax on earnings and also don't face the tax on investment income. So that's a really big hole. And the proposal is to close that hole so that people that are actively involved in their businesses and partnerships and S-corporations they do face that equivalent 3.8% tax on their income. It's a really, not only does it raise a lot of revenue from, from pretty high-income people, but it also reduces the incentive to play games with the classification of your income using these entities, which is a really big problem for tax compliance. I used to hear this sometimes referred to as the John Edwards loophole because he he apparently, when he was a, a lawyer, uh, I guess he's still a lawyer, but when he was a big trial attorney in, in North Carolina, he would claim his income as as profits from his law firm as opposed to a salary for himself. And so he would get around Medicare taxes. And so, yeah, if, it's not really in, in anyone's interest to, to make a, a, a former Democratic senator the like poster boy of this. 
But it, my sense is it's a pretty common problem in places like law firms, doctor's offices, accountancies, that kind of thing. Yeah, investment fund managers. You, you know, it, it, we're talking about sort of pretty high income professional or sort of other types of businesses that are run through these partnerships. I wanted to, to ask a bit about some some efforts that didn't make it into the bill to close some of those uh, those loopholes. So there's one, uh, Ron Wyden, who chairs the Senate Finance Committee, had something he called the billionaire's tax that was sort of in the news for about a week and then got killed. Um, but before that, there was, there was some discussion about changing how stocks and other sort of inherited goods are treated when their owner dies and is passing them on. Uh, to make sure that, say, Mark Zuckerberg has to pay taxes on all of his Facebook stock um, at some point. And most of those have fallen through. So I, I guess my my big question about that is we we have the surcharge on capital gains taxes. We have this uh, this tax increase that will hit some capital income. How much are are some of the sort of high earners from investments, people uh, who either started a company and got rich from that, like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or, or people in finance and hedge funds. Does the bill at this point do a lot to, to raise their taxes and, and close that gap between investment and, and wage income? Or have most of the, the things that were proposed to try to get around that fallen by the wayside as the bill got written? The bill does affect some of these people, mostly through the corporate tax changes that ultimately will be effectively borne by uh, shareholders, uh, and especially those who hold a lot <laughs> of, of capital income. But this is this is something that's still going to be a big structural problem left to fix in the tax code. So as you were saying, when, when sort of people earn a salary, they pay taxes on it withheld from every paycheck. The rest is, is made up in an annual tax return. But the wealthiest people, the, the, the Elon Musk's, the Jeff Bezos's, as you say, don't get most of their income that way. They get it from the increases in the values of the assets that they hold. If they sold the asset, uh, somebody's been t- tweeting about that this week, <laughs> uh, they still get a lower tax rate than the top rate on salary. But if they hold the assets that have grown in value until they die, the tax code completely wipes out the potential tax on that lifetime of accumulated income. So the wealthy person doesn't face tax on that income. Their heirs don't face tax on that income. Their heirs, heirs don't face tax on that income. It's a it's a zero percent rate on the extraordinary incomes of the wealthiest and highest income people in the country. And as you said, there's there's like a number of different ways to address this. You could say, as the Biden administration proposed, that they at least pay tax on those gains when they pass the assets to their heirs. There's another proposal that says that okay, well, we won't tax it then, but if the heirs sell the asset, then we'll at least tax it then. So rather than erasing the tax on gains altogether, it can still be deferred for very long times across generations, but at least sometime it might face some tax. And then the third big proposal was the one that you mentioned, this um, Senator Wyden's proposal for a billionaire's income tax. For the wealthiest filers, what he proposed was that they would be subject to an annual tax on gains in the value of their stock and other easily valued assets as those gains accumulate. So in the same way that wages and salaries are taxed in the year that they're earned. At the moment, the bill doesn't contain any of these proposals (laughs) and it also doesn't fill holes in the estate tax. So to me, that, that is one big problem in the tax code that really must be addressed another day. 
And and one other sort of gap in, at least in terms of the progressiveness of the tax code in the bill as currently written are some of the changes to the state and local tax deduction. We recently did a whole weeds episode about that. Uh, We'll we'll link to that in the show notes if you want to get really deep into the weeds. And so I I don't want to take too much of our time today on it. But the bill as of right now, this is very much in flux, but as of right now, it it would increase the cap on that deduction from $10,000 to $80,000. How does that sort of change what this bill does for wealthy Americans when you pair it with things like the the surtax, the change to the net investment tax? Is this still a tax hike for some people, for for fewer people? What what does adding salt do to the overall picture there? So since your last show, the Tax Policy Center has actually analyzed the House proposal. And just that provision alone, 94% of the benefit would go to the top fifth of households and nearly 90% of millionaires would get tax cuts averaging $17,000 a piece. So (laughs) so it's a pretty big deal just by itself. But for about half of high-income households, that tax cut would be more than wiped out by the other tax increases in the package. For about half of them, it wouldn't. And it would be bigger than any of the tax increases that they face. So while we talked before about overall, the top 1% would be facing very large tax increases on average, because of the SALT provision, some significant proportion would actually see a tax cut. Um, you know, <laughs> the good news is the Senate can still fix this. Um, you know, again, since your last episode, uh, Senators Menendez and Sanders and others have been very vocal about the need to do that. And I think there is an expectation that they will try to trim that back some. Senator Menendez and Sanders, for instance, are saying, well, we could give upper middle income households some additional SALT deduction but we'd put an income cap on that, maybe starting at $400,000 so that millionaires and multimillionaire households wouldn't get a tax cut. And I I think it's pretty important that the deal moves in that direction. We're going to take one one last break, but when we come back, we're going to sort of zoom out and, and think about how different the tax code could look after Build Back Better passes, if it passes. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm here with Chai-Ching Huang, uh, who's executive director of the Tax Law Center at NYU Law. So I kind of wanted to step back for our last section and and think a little bit about how major a change Build Back Better is, uh, just in terms of the history of taxes in the U.S., so if we're comparing what Biden wants to do to something like the, the Reagan or Bush tax cuts or some of the smaller tax hikes under Clinton and Obama, 
how big of a change is it in the context of that history? Is it sort of small tweaks the way that we think of someone like Clinton doing, or or is he doing something much bigger? So, I mean, I think we can think about the the school size of these changes, like the how many dollars they involve. Um, but before getting to that, I think it's actually the things that are more significant about this package are the policy changes that are structural and have some potential big long-term shifts in the way that the tax system works. And we've, we've talked about a number of those, the, the tax credits like the child tax credit that are you know, representing a view that investing in children through uh, some of these programs, rather than continuing tax cuts for high-income people and very profitable corporations, is actually a, a much stronger ROI on public investment. And the tax administration changes and the international tax changes those are all sort of pretty foundational pieces that future reform can build on on top of. And, you know, we also mentioned some structural things that it doesn't do, things like uh, addressing the incomes of very wealthy people and you know, potentially carbon pricing and, and other things like that. But to me, I think this, this package, even though it's not even attempting to be true fundamental full tax reform, is taking some pretty structural elements that are often getting missed by by some of the discussions so currently the corporate tax rate is 21 percent, and the bill doesn't change that which is kind of surprising to me but it does manage to raise 700 billion dollars over a decade from corporations how is that possible what what is it doing what what kind of tax reform is it doing to to raise that kind of money yeah that's a that's a great question and i i think what's left <laughs> the, the not doing the corporate rate increase i think has a name <laughs> so, yeah. a single senator's name um but what we do have left is a, a pretty structurally important change and it's it's actually part of what tax uh, analysts and watchers are considering a really big deal in the way that multinational is going to be taxed globally it's a once in a century shift so in terms of the how the u.s tax code treats multinationals. The 2017 tax law cut that domestic rate to 21%, as you said, but it set a rate on US multinationals' foreign profits, so profits that they're reporting in subsidiaries offshore, as low as zero. And that's a pretty big incentive to locate profits on paper and even real investment offshore. The bill had some rules to try to limit that damage, but the design was pretty flawed. And the central rule there was the minimum tax on US multinationals' foreign profits. This is known as GILTI. <laughs> that stands for Global Intangible Low-Taxed Income because tax lawyers love thinking up really <laughs> super catchy acronyms like that. <laughs> and this thing basically says that if a company doesn't pay at least 10.5% in foreign taxes on its foreign profits offshore, it'll have to pay a top-up tax to the US government to take it up to at least 10.5%. And that's kind of the headline, but that provision exempts a lot of foreign income. And it's also calculated on a global basis, which means that multinationals can take taxes and income from countries where they pay almost nothing and combine it with income and taxes from countries where they pay significant tax. That averaging lets them pay less guilty overall and from a tax perspective, it has this really weird result that the US can actually be the least attractive place for a multinational to invest or put profits. And that headline rate of 10.5% is also still way below 
the 21% domestic rate. So what the proposal does in the House at the moment is to address some of these flaws. It raises the guilty rate to 15%. There's still going to be a gap, but it's narrowing that gap. It brings more foreign income into the minimum tax. And it also applies it on a country-by-country basis, which is a really important... It's a technical change, but it's a really important one structurally because it means that the US will no longer be the least attractive place to put profits and investment. And this and other changes together raise about $280 billion over 10 years. This is something that, like, even not even thinking about what's going on in the rest of the world is pretty attractive. It's raising large sums from multinationals. That is a very progressive tax that does flow through to wealthiest individuals. It's reducing the tilt towards offshore profits and investment, and that's why it's been a a very high priority for labour groups and also civil society groups. But even beyond that, to understand kind of just how important this moment is in international tax, we've got to understand that the framework that countries have been using to figure out how to tax multinationals is literally a century old. It was put in place in the 1920s. And what's happened this year with the Biden administration sort of re-engaging in multilateral negotiations is that 136 countries have agreed to a new framework that says that we're going to try and stop this race to the bottom on corporate tax rates, this situation where lots of countries were cutting the corporate tax rates, trying to be tax havens, or letting their own multinationals use tax havens to escape tax domestically. And one of the really important parts of this proposal is that all of the countries agreed to implement an international minimum tax, kind of like the one that's in the the House proposal. So that means other countries will also have a floor on their tax rates of corporations of about 15%. And that gives the US room to to come back and address that corporate tax rate without uh, with a much lower gap between the US tax rate and the tax rate of other countries. So the the hope is if this agreement goes through with all these other countries and if the US lives up to its part of the agreement by passing the House version of this bill, you don't see as many shenanigans with with companies like Google or Apple trying to park money in Ireland or, or wherever. Is is that the general idea? That is exactly right. You know, the old international tax regime was all about stopping those countries from facing tax in more than one country on the same income. Uh, what happened, ultimately, is that they faced zero tax on large swaths of their <laughs> income. So this, this new agreement is trying to ensure that they face at least this minimum level of tax somewhere. And that, that holds promise not only for home countries like the US, where multinationals have been able to kind of avoid paying tax, but also for developing countries that have had to worry about if they implement a strong corporate tax, whether investment and activity will just move elsewhere. And, and the last sort of a pay for, it's not a tax increase, uh, but, but way to pay for some of this bill that I wanted, wanted to ask you about is, is just tax enforcement. And we, we alluded to it just a second ago with some efforts to move profits overseas, but there's a lot of more than just exploiting loopholes, but just like breaking tax law that's currently going on in forest. So what does the bill do on that? And, and how can that help pay for, for some of the rest of the bill? The problem that this is trying to address is that there's an estimated $7 trillion of taxes that are owed 
under the current tax law, but is not going to get paid over the next decade. And that is a big problem fiscally, and it's also a big problem for the rule of law and tax fairness. The top 1% of filers are responsible for a large share of that, about $163 billion annually. And recent research suggests that they could be responsible for a whole lot more because a lot of the problem is we don't know exactly what's going on with the pretty complicated finances of some of these very large businesses and high-income people. So the, the bill would try to shrink that gap by adequately funding the IRS. The IRS, as you mentioned before, is in a, in a bit of a state in terms of its resourcing. Uh, between 2010 and 2019, its enforcement budget was cut by a fifth. It lost more than a third of its expert revenue agents. And unsurprisingly, the audit rates of the highest income filers and largest corporations plummeted by more than a half. So this, this money would allow a restoration of some of that compliance activity and pulling in revenue that's already owed under the law. It's also kind of important that this is not just about enforcement. I'm, I'm kind of making air quotes at the moment yes, that you yeah. can't see. But, <laughs> but, but it's also sort of compliance related. Some of this is just about helping people file accurately. The IRS answered about a quarter of phone calls last year. And you want the IRS to be able to help people who want to know what their tax obligations are to be able to, you know, fill in their returns accurately, to provide simple tools and calculators and guides. So this is a, a really important thing for honest filers as well. To me, though, the kind of bigger picture here, and, and it's kind of like the international tax reform, there's, there's really structural value here beyond just the sort of impact on the budget. Just building up this core function of government makes it possible to start thinking about more ambitious reforms to improve tax filing. I think a lot of people would love to see sort of pre-populated returns or better integration of, of tax filing with other programs or revenue proposals that are really quite administratively challenging for a really depleted agency. So kind of rebuilding this could have some really important long-term benefits, both in terms of how tax administration functions, but also the kinds of policy changes we can think about. Right. And it, I think it's important to note here that a lot of what we talked about in the first segment, the child tax credit, the premium tax credit for, for Obamacare, some of the clean energy stuff, all of that has to be enforced by the IRS. And so some of this additional funding should should make some of those provisions work better, right? Exactly. I mean, you want people that are newly signing up, uh, they, they might not have had to file a tax return before, to be able to know their their obligations and comply with them so that they don't create risks for themselves on the back end. And adequate funding and also asking the IRS to do things like put up simple portals to produce guides in different languages to conduct outreach so that people understand their obligations and to make sure that sort of all of these different ways of coming into the tax system smoothly integrated with each other because, you know, families are not stable across time. You know, finances are not stable across time. What you might want to know about one year is not the same as, as the next year. You want to have that all working together in a really seamless way. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, it's, it's such a pleasure to, to be able to connect again. And, and I think it will be a very fun episode for, for our coterie of tax fans. Oh, I, I had fun with this. <laughs> <laughs> 
that is all for us today. Thank you so much to Chai Ching Huang for joining me today and walking me through Build Back Better. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. Just in case you forgot, uh, you can sign up for our newsletter at vox.com slash weedsletter. We'll be back next Tuesday with Jerusalem and Dara for our panel discussion. So we will see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.